Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This discussion is going to be on 1 Nephi chapter 4. So let's just jump right into it. Now I want you to be thinking about, again, we talked last time about why was it justified for Nephi to kill Laban. Think about why it was necessary that Laban be killed uh, going forward. Verse 1, And it came to pass that I spake unto my brethren, saying, Let us go up again unto Jerusalem, and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he is mightier than the earth, than all the earth, and why not mightier than Laban and his fifty, yea, or even than his tens of thousands? The regular division in the army is ten thousand, as it was at the Hill Cumorah. That was by Nibli. Therefore, let us go up, let us be strong like unto Moses. Notice that he's going to prophesy about Moses here doing certain things, and, uh, and Nephi is going to be just like Moses. For he truly spake unto the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither, and our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground. And the armies of Pharaoh did follow and were destroyed in the waters of the Red Sea. I don't think that, ne that Nephi necessarily thought he was being prophetic here, uh, but Nephi is going to do something with water too. He's going to build a ship and go across the ocean um, and have power over waters just like Moses here. Nephi was not the only prophet in Scripture to shed a man's blood. Moses killed an Egyptian when Moses saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. When he looked around and saw that no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Fearing that he might get caught, Moses fled to the land of Midian. Nephi's reference to Moses as he and his brothers moved quietly toward Jerusalem that dark night turns out to be more prophetic and more significant than, than Nephi probably realized at the time. Nephi urged his brothers, let us be like Moses. Although Nephi had the destruction of the Egyptian army in mind, he assumed he would encounter Laban's 50. In the end, it was not an army that Nephi destroyed, but a single man. Nephi became strong like unto Moses, following the archetype who, who set into motion the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Even so, the slaying of Laban inexorably sealed the destiny of Lehi's party as exiles from the land of Jerusalem until they likewise arrived at their new promised land. In retrospect, the parallel between the actions of Moses and Nephi was surely strengthened by the fact that both had been involved in the excusable killing of a man. That was by John Welch. Verse 3, Now behold, ye know that this is true, and ye also know that an angel hath spoken unto you. Wherefore can ye doubt? Let us go up, the Lord is able to deliver us, even as our fathers, and to destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians. So now they're doing it the Lord's way. They've tried chance, they've tried the worldly way, now they're trying it in the Lord's way. This is where they find success. Now, when I, was that a spoiler alert? Sorry about that. Now, when I had spoken these words, they were yet wroth and did still continue to murmur. Nevertheless, they did follow me up until we came without the walls of Jerusalem. Joseph Smith was translating with the seer stones. He looked up with, with surprise and said to Emma, did Jerusalem have walls? He didn't even know the city had walls. He didn't know anything about what he was writing here. That was by Hugh Nibley. Uh, so again, this is translated material. It's not something Joseph would have made up. And it was by night, and I caused... Uh, now, nighttime, think about this, that there's not any city lights. So this is a very dangerous thing for Nephi to be doing, to be wandering around the streets of, of Jerusalem late at night when it's totally dark out. 
Uh, there's probably bandits and bad guys out that are also dangerous for, for Nephi. I caused that they should hide themselves without the walls, and after they had hid themselves, I, Nephi, crept into the city and went forth towards the house of Laban. The lighting of city streets, except for festivals, is a blessing unknown to ages other than our own. Hundreds of passages might be cited from ancient writers, classic and oriental, to show that in times gone by, the streets of even the biggest towns were perfectly dark at night and very dangerous. To move about late at night without lamp bearers and armed guards was to risk almost certain assault. In the famous trial of Alcibiades for the mutilation of the Hermes, we have the testimony of one witness who, all alone, beheld by moonlight the, the midnight depredations of a drunken band in the heart of downtown Athens, from which it is clear that the streets of the greatest city in the Western world were unlighted, deserted, and dangerous at night. In times of social unrest, the streets at night were virtually given over to the underworld as they were in some European cities during the blackouts of the late war. The extreme narrowness of ancient streets made their blackout doubly effective. That was by Hugh Nibley. Verse 6, And I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. Harabi Lee said, Sometimes we have to walk to the edge of the light and perhaps a few steps into the darkness, and you will find that the light will appear and move ahead of you. Obviously, caution and wisdom must be used with regards to this principle I am discussing. Uh, Lionel Kedrick of the 70 discussed this in these terms. It is a misconception to believe that we should consult Heavenly Father on every matter in life. He expects us to solve a portion of our problems without petitioning him for potential solutions. It is through this process that we grow, develop, and become more perfect. He is not always concerned about mundane matters unless they are not in keeping with sacred principles. We should daily petition for the companionship of the Holy Ghost. With this presence of the Spirit, we will feel the promptings without petitioning Heavenly Father on every personal matter. Elder Oaks explained, we are often left to work out problems without the dictation or special direction of the Spirit. That is part of the experience we must have in mortality. Fortunately, we are never out of our Savior's sight, and if our judgment leads to an action beyond the limits of what is permissible, and if we are listening to the still small voice, the Lord will restrain us by the promptings of His Spirit. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I went forth, and as I came near unto the house of Laban, I beheld a man, and he had fallen to the earth before me, for he was drunken with wine. And when I came to him, I found that it was Laban. Now notice the first thing he does. And I beheld his sword and drew it forth from the sheath thereof. So right away, knowing that Laban is a threat, and that what if he comes to uh, while he's laying on the ground, he immediately disarms Laban so that he, even if he does wake up, he can't do anything to, to Nephi because he has the sword. And the hilt thereof was of pure gold, and the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. And I saw that the blade thereof was of the most precious steel. So in other words, Nephi is saying, whoa, this is a cool sword. Swords were worth thousands of dollars back in the day. Laban's sword became the sword of kings in the Nephite um, culture. Verse 10, it came to pass that I was constrained by the spirit that I should kill Laban, but I said in my heart, never at any time have I shed the blood of man, and I shrunk or was sick to my stomach, and would that I might not slay him. Elder Holland says, a bitter test, a desire to shrink, sound familiar? We don't know why those plates could not have been obtained some other way, perhaps accidentally left at the plate polishers one night, or maybe falling off the back of Laban's chariot on a Sabbath afternoon drive. For that matter, why didn't Nephi just leave this story out of the book altogether? 
It is not intended that either Nephi or we be spared the struggle of this account. I believe that story was placed in the very opening verses of a 531-page book and then told in painfully specific detail in order to focus every reader of that record on the absolutely fundamental gospel issue of obedience and submission to the communicated will of the Lord. If Nephi cannot yield to this terribly painful command, if he cannot bring himself to obey, then it is entirely probable that he can never succeed or survive in the tasks that lie just ahead. As he mentioned to his father, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. I confess that I wince a little when I hear that promise quoted so casually among us. Jesus knew what that kind of commitment would entail, and so now does Nephi, and so will the host of others before it is over. That vow took Christ to the cross on Calvary, and it remains at the heart of every Christian covenant. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. Well, we shall see. How do we know that such promptings are actually from the Spirit? President Benson said, May I suggest three short tests to avoid being deceived. One, what do the standard works have to say about it, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this, to this word? It is because there is no light in them, said Isaiah. We must diligently study the scriptures. Of special importance to us are the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. The, number two, the second guide is, what do the Latter-day Prophets or Presidents of the Church have to say on the subject, particularly the living president? There is only one man on the earth today who speaks for the church. That man is the president of the church because he gives the word of the Lord for us today. His words have an even more immediate importance than those of the dead prophets. When speaking under the influence of the Holy Ghost, his words are scripture. The third and final test is the Holy Ghost, the test of the Spirit. By that Spirit, we may know the truth of all things. This test can only be fully effective if one's channels of communication with God are clean and virtuous and uncluttered with sin. Verse 11, uh, And the Spirit said unto me again, Behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands, yea, and I also knew that he had sought to take away mine own life, yea, and he would not hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, and he also had taken away our property. Keep in mind the Doctrine and Covenant section 98, which speaks about the law of retribution, uh, talks exactly about this concept here that Lehi is going through, uh, about uh, that, that Laban had threatened them. He had threatened to take away their lives three times. Um, and so this is total justification now for, Laban, for Nephi to kill Laban. Um, and so this is a justifiable murder, not murder, but a justifiable killing. Verse 12, And it came to pass that the Spirit said unto me again, Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. And now when I, Nephi, had heard these words, I remembered the words of the Lord, which he spake unto me in the wilderness, saying, that inasmuch as thy seed shall keep my commandments, they shall prosper in the land of promise. Yea, and I also thought that they could not keep the commandments of the Lord according to the law of Moses, save they should have the law. And I also knew that the law was engraven upon the plates of brass. And again, I knew that the Lord had delivered Laban into my hands for this cause, that I might obtain the records according to his commandments. Therefore, I did obey the voice of the Spirit and took Laban by the hair of the head, and I smote off his head with his own sword. And this sounds like a the account with uh, David and Goliath, that he also grabbed him by the hair of the head and cut his head off. Some people have wondered why God needed to have Nephi kill Laban instead of telling him simply to put on Laban's clothes and go forth in disguise to get the plates, leaving the drunken Laban alive, however, would probably have created serious problems. Even if Laban spent the night in the streets, the next morning he would have re regained his senses and would have been furious. 
he would have led a search party to pursue and kill Nephi and his brothers and recover the plates of brass. With Zoram gone, people in Jerusalem could well have assumed that Zoram was the one who had killed Laban. If Laban had not been killed, however, he would have known Zoram and the circumstances well enough to have suspected what had happened and to have led an effective pursuit against Nephi and his brothers. These reasons explain why it was virtually essential to the completion of Nephi's task that Laban be killed. And with a little imagination, several other reasons can probably be suggested. And that was by John Welch. The spirit assured Nephi that the present fortuitous circumstance, finding Laban drunken and incapacitated in the streets, was not an accident, but that the Lord hath, hath delivered him into thy hands. According to the law of retribution, Nephi was perfectly justified in slaying Laban. That was by Millet McConkie. That which is wrong under one circumstance may be, and often is, right under another. God said, Thou shalt not kill. At another time he said, Thou shalt utterly destroy. This is the principle on which the government of heaven is conducted, by revelation adapted to the circumstances in which the children of the kingdom are placed. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof till long after the events transpire. And that's a quote by Joseph Smith. Verse 19, And after I had smitten off his head with his own sword, I took the garments of Laban and put them upon mine own body, yea, even every whit, and I did gird on his armor about my loins. Returning by night in a third attempt to get the records, Nephi stumbled upon the prostrate form of Laban lying dead drunk in the deserted street. The commander had been, so his servant later told Nephi, in conference with the elders of the Jews out by night among them, and was wearing his full-dress armor. What a world of inference is this! We sense the gravity of the situation in Jerusalem, which the elders are still trying to conceal. We hear the suppressed excitement of Zoram's urgent talk as he and Nephi hasten through the streets of the city gates to the city gates, and from Zoram's willingness to change sides and leave the city, we can be sure that he, as Laban's secretary, knew how badly things were going. From the Lakish letters, it is clear that informed parties in Jerusalem were quite aware of the critical state of things at Jerusalem. Even while the Sarum, or the elders, were working with all their might to suppress every sign of criticism and disaffection, how could they take counsel to provide for the defense of the city and their own interests without exciting alarm, or giving rise to general rumors and misgivings? By holding their meetings in secret, of course, such midnight sessions of civil and military leaders as Laban had just been attending. And that was by Hugh Nibley. Verse 20, And after I had done this, I went forth unto the treasury of Laban, and as I went forth towards the treasury of Laban, behold, I saw the servant of Laban, who had the keys of the treasury, and I commanded him in the voice of Laban that he should go with me into the treasury. I wonder if maybe the, um, the Nephi maybe had on a helmet so that he actually couldn't see his face very well, but he could hear the voice, and he's disguising his voice now to sound like, uh, to, to sound like Laban. For Zoram in Laban's private, is, pri is Laban's private secretary and keeper, of the keys was himself an important official and no mere slave. Professor Albright has shown that the title servant by which Nephi designates him meant in Jerusalem at that time something like official representative and was an honorable rather than a menial title. Verse 21, And he supposed me to be his master Laban, for he beheld the garments and also the sword girded about my loins. And he spake unto me concerning the elders of the Jews, he knowing that his master Laban had been out by night among them. And again by Hugh Nibley, he says, The portrait of Laban is absolutely marvelous. He was in charge of everything as the military governor. And the records were kept in his office. Um, he was the military governor. And so I think I've read that before. Laban wouldn't let the brothers have them unless they paid him plenty. So they paid him plenty. And he said, April Fools. 
Verse 23, And I spake unto him as if it had been Laban. And I also spake unto him that I should carry the engravings which were upon the plates of brass to my elder brethren who were without the walls. And I also bade him that he should follow me. And he, supposing that I spake of the brethren of the church, was there a church anciently? And if so, how was it organized and regulated? There was not much as the twinkling of an eye during the whole so-called pre-Christian era when the church of Jesus Christ was not upon the earth, organized basically the same way it is now. Melchizedek belonged to the church. Laban was a member. So also was Lehi long before he left Jerusalem. There was also apostolic power. The Melchizedek priesthood always directed the course of the Aaronic priesthood. All of the prophets held a position in the hierarchy of the day. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie. Continuing verse 26, And that I was truly that Laban whom I had slain, wherefore he did follow me. And he spake unto me many times concerning the elders of the Jews, as I went forth unto my brethren who were without the walls. And it came to pass that when Laman saw me, he was exceedingly frightened, and, he, and also Lemuel and Sam, and they fled from before my presence. For they supposed it was Laban, and that he had slain me, and had sought to take away their lives also. And it came to pass that I called after them, and they did hear me. Wherefore they did cease to flee from my presence. And it came to pass that when the servants of Laban beheld my brethren, he began to tremble and was about to flee from before me and return to the city of, of Jerusalem. Remember how Nephi said he was large in stature? Uh, verse 31, And now I, Nephi, being a man large in stature, and also having received much strength of the Lord, therefore I did seize upon the servant of Laban and held him that he should not flee. And it came to pass that I spoke with him that if he would hearken unto my words as the Lord liveth and as I live, even so that he would hearken unto our words, he would we would spare his life. When they gave their word, it was binding. In those days, no man would dream of breaking an oath. It would be the most solemn of all oaths to the Semite. As the Lord liveth and as I live, Nephi swore that oath in order to pacify the struggling Zoram in an instant. And that was by President Nelson. Verse 33, And I spake unto him, even with an oath, that he need not fear, that he should be a free man like unto us, if he would go, if he would go down into the wilderness with us. Zoram couldn't go back to Jerusalem because the police would have pursued Lehi like they did Uriah when he fled to Egypt. 34, And I also spake unto him, saying, Surely the Lord hath commanded us to do this thing, and shall we not be diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord? Therefore, if thou wilt go down into the wilderness to my father, thou shalt have place with us. And it came to pass that Zoram did take courage at the words which I spake. Now, one of the things that they don't mention is that maybe there's a girlfriend in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in line for you. Uh, you can get married. Uh, they didn't tell him that. Of course, they didn't know yet either. Now, Zoram, a strong, which means a strong, refreshing rain in Aramaic, was the name of the servant, and he promised that he would go down into the wilderness unto our father. Yea, and he also made an oath unto us that he would tarry with us from that time forth. Now we were desirous that he should tarry with us for this cause, that the Jews might not know concerning our flight into the wilderness, lest they should pursue us and destroy us. Even though they're about 500 and some odd miles away, or a couple hundred miles away, that the Jews would have come after them and found them. Verse 37, It came to pass that when Zoram had made an oath unto us, our fears did cease concerning him. And it came to pass that we took the plates of brass and the servant of Laban and departed into the wilderness and journeyed unto the tent of our father. So you can see that it was absolutely necessary that they kill Laban because uh, they, there was an absolute danger for the Nephites that they would have come after Lehi and his family. I bear testimony of the truth of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.